sort of as a subtitle to today's message, we're simply going to call it God in a Box. I thought it was really cool that Dave, in his uh, baptism testimony, he didn't know anything. I hadn't told anybody about this. And Dave said, I knew that I wasn't going to find God in a box. And uh, this, uh, this holy place. And what you need to know about the religion of Jesus' day, not only the Jewish religion, but every religion of all the surrounding nations, all of uh, the Roman Empire, the pantheon of the gods, the common denominator for all the religions of the day was that God, you went to God's house to visit God. You couldn't just dial direct. You had to go to a special holy place where special holy men uh, made special holy sacrifices. It wasn't just the Jewish religion. All of the religions, uh, there were, they had various temples. They may have had multitude of temples because they had many gods, many temples. The Jewish people had one big temple, one big God. But uh, they all had this common denominator that you could not dial direct. You couldn't just go to God for yourself. You had to go to this special holy place where special holy men made special holy sacrifices. And um, Jesus comes and he speaks into that. And um, the thing about it is that the earliest disciples, they sort of picked up on this idea. Uh, because, like I said, it, it was, and we have the same thing today. We, we apply the principles that we learn from Jesus to our religion. Because we have this, this box that we come to every Sunday morning. But this box isn't a holy place. This building isn't holy. And it makes some Christians really mad when you start talking about that. Because I was raised in a church where we even talked about it. We would say, welcome to God's house. And we, you know, you had to be quiet. You had to wear a particular thing in God's house. But there's nothing holy at all about this building. In fact, that's, I love it that, that we don't even call this church. People will say, We're gonna, I'll meet you at the building. The church is the gathering of people. Uh, Jesus said that when two or three of you are gathered together, I'll be there in the middle of you. The, holy, the holiest place on earth is the space between you and me. When we're gathered together, then that place becomes holy. But until then, this is just a big box. Uh, I know it, it, it's upset people at times because, um, you know, they'll say, well, can I have a certain um, event at, at your center there because we said that this is a community center. We're not building a church. The church is the people that come and gather in the building. There's, this is a nice place. You'll notice though there's no crosses. There's no special sign that would indicate we're in a church because Jesus said the holy place is when you and you and you and you and you gather together. I'll get together with you. It doesn't matter if you're out in the woods. It doesn't matter if you're in the parking lot. It doesn't matter if you're downtown. Wherever you gather together, that's the holy place. From the very, very beginning, we talked about this, that God wanted to have relationship. God is a God of community. He doesn't, and he, he over and over, in fact, the earliest disciples in Acts chapter 7. This is Stephen, and this actually got Stephen killed. And it says, Stephen said this, However, the Most High doesn't live in temples made by human hands. As the prophet says, and he goes on, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? God is saying, I made the whole universe. I made the whole world. And you're going to impress me with your little box? Could you build me such a resting place? D didn't my hands make both heaven and earth? You can't create me a place for me to live. So the earliest disciples had this idea. In fact, Paul, when he was speaking to uh, to non-believers at Athens, at Greece. He's introducing the gospel to them. And he says this. He said, he's the God who made the world 
and everything in it. Since he's Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And humans' hands can't serve his needs. He's speaking even to their sacrificial system. You can't give God something to impress him. He doesn't need your stuff. He doesn't need your food. They would bring a, a grain offering or they would kill something. These special holy men made special holy sacrifices. Something died and then you were forgiven. God is saying, I, I really don't need that. It's not, it's not what I'm after. I'm after you. I'm after just communicating and hanging out with and getting to know you and you getting to know me. The special holy place is when you and I get together. So as we said, let's just hit these really quickly. There is no special holy place where we meet God. This building isn't God's house. This building isn't holy until we arrive. And then when we get here, God says, I just, I'm so crazy about you guys. Wherever you get together, I'll show up. I'll be there right in the middle of you. I want to have a place where we can just talk. I want to have a place where I can just be with you. God is crazy, crazy in love with us. He's like, he's like a... Uh, 15, 16-year-old boy that just saw that cheerleader. Seriously, God has a crush on us. And he's not interested in a bunch of rituals and routines and people trying to be better than someone else by going to a certain place and feeling like because I got up early and I put my special clothes on and I went to that special place and I'm better than the other people that didn't do that. No, it's not his idea at all. But these, the earliest disciples had this idea. And here's the question. Where did the early disciples get this idea? Where did they get this idea? Because this is not at all what all of Judaism had in mind. They thought the temple was everything. In fact, that was their perception of how you, leave, how you worship God. If you leave the temple, if you decide, oh, I don't need to go to the temple, you're leaving God. They could not concept, if there's no temple, how can we worship God? That's the only place you can meet him is at God's house. Well, where did they get this idea? Well, they got it from Jesus. And we're going to see this final act of defiance led to his execution and brought about the end of religion. Now, I just want to look at the sort of the location of the events that we're going to be talking about. If, um, if we were in Jerusalem, this is on, the picture is taken from the point of us standing on the Mount of Olives. And Jerusalem is a raised city. It's on a hill. The Mount of Olives, of course, is a hill. And in between there, you see it sort of dips down. You see the trees are headed down. And go up the hill there. Now, this is going to be very, very important as we, you know, if we're standing here, you go down. I get to use my pointer. Isn't this exciting? And right now, there's the Dome of the Rock there. But as you, you have to go down across the Kidron Valley, and then you would go up to where the temple was. Now, if we go back in time just a little bit, this is a, a model of what the temple would have looked like in Jesus' day. And so, you know, you think, well, that Jerusalem was a city and it had a temple in it. It was mainly... More accurately, it would, it, you could describe it as a temple with a surrounding town. The temple took up 20, 25% of the real estate that Jerusalem had. It was massive. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Uh, let's go to that next um, slide. There. This gives sort of uh, a, an example of, you see the people, they're tiny down there. And the temple was just huge. It was magnificent. And there's the Mount of Olives over there. And there's a valley. Once again, this is sort of the reverse perspective. You're at the temple. The temple, it's sort of more of a compound, and uh, you go across the Kidron Valley, and there's the Mount of Olives on the other side, and it just takes up this huge area of the town. It's the Jewish people, to them, the size of their temple indicated the size of their God. Everything was about 
going to the temple and worshiping. Let's go to the next one there. If we zoom in just a little bit, the events that we're about to talk about take place in these outer, this outer court area. This is called the court of the Gentiles. And as we go on, you'll find out a little bit more as to what that means. But then this inside here is, is the temple proper. Let's go on to the next one there. And uh, you would go up these steps. Now, the, if you were a non-Jewish person and you wanted to serve Jehovah in some way, um, you know, and you, but you didn't want to become Jewish because, you know, it's, it started with circumcision, so that was sort of a downer at the very beginning. But, uh, but you could still, you could come out here and you could worship God, but then the Jewish people could go inside these doors here into this inner place. And this really tall structure here, this like box inside of a box, is, is the Holy of Holies. And there was a huge curtain there, which will become more important as we go. This curtain was, history tells us, was 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide, 4 inches thick. And it separated the place where the Jewish people believe God lived in there. That's the only place one time a year that the high priest, the most holy guy in the most holy place, could go in and make the most holy sacrifice. And God would meet him there inside that box. Okay? And here's just another sort of picture of it. This gives you a little perspective from the artist's standpoint of, you know, there's the people there. And this is where all the events that we're about to talk about take place in this outer court of the Gentiles. So let's get into it. This, this starts at the time of Passover. Passover is the biggest, it's like the Super Bowl for the Jewish religion. Everybody is coming into town from countries, uh, from the entire uh, country of Israel, from countries all around it. People are traveling back to Jerusalem. And Jesus picks this time to sort of introduce himself as the Messiah. He's the guy coming to save Israel. Now, the Israelites expected a warrior. They called him the lion of the tribe of Judah. They expected this warrior to come in. But Jesus gets on a little donkey and rides into town, sort of like Festus from Gunsmoke, if you remember. And so he came. They expected a lion, but what they got was a lamb. They expected Jesus to come in bless the temple, use the temple grounds as a sort of a point of contact to rally the people around and to uh, initiate a revolt against the Roman army and to overthrow the Roman army and bring Israel back to its former status. But Jesus comes in as a lamb. He's talking about you have to love your enemy. When people are mean to you, you be good to them. And it was entirely blowing their mind as this concept of who uh, their Messiah was to be. So Jesus comes in. They're laying down palm branches. They're worshiping him. They're proclaiming him as the Messiah as he comes into Jerusalem. And here's where we pick up the story. So Jesus came to Jerusalem. He went into the temple. And this is such a strange verse. It's just, there's like there's something brewing. And I, as you've heard me say before, sometimes when I read in these four gospels, I see it like a movie. You, you hear this music in the background. There's a storm coming. There's something in Jesus' eyes as he looks around carefully at everything. Those pictures that we just showed you, Jesus comes into that huge compound and he looked around carefully at everything. He's just looking. There's something that's caught his eye. He's, he's taking his time carefully to look around. And he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany, which is a village really closely there, with his 12 disciples. Now, the next morning, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. They're headed back to the temple. But Jesus was hungry. Why was Jesus hungry? Because he hadn't eaten anything. <laughs> he 
He's 100% God, but he's 100% man. But there's a very important thing that's happening here. Now, I'm going to give you just a little bit of theology for you Bible nerds. This may be something interesting to you. Uh, Mark, the author of the book of Mark, Mark is actually his last name, John, Mark. He uses this literary technique several times throughout his account of Jesus' life. Theologians call it a Markin sandwich. It's where he starts to tell a story, then he interrupts the story and tells another story, then comes back to the former story. He makes a sandwich out of the story, and in the middle is the meat. It's sort of helping to explain what in the world this story is about. So here Mark is doing a Markin sandwich. He says Jesus goes to the temple, he goes back, but the next day he's hungry. And this, this story seems like completely out of place, but it has everything to do with what Jesus is about to do at the temple. There's meaning behind this. Jesus was hungry. He noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off. Those of you that have been here since the very beginning of the series will remember that this whole thing started with two trees. In the Garden of Eden, this is what we said the origin of religion was. That Adam and Eve decided to eat fruit from a tree that they weren't supposed to eat from. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is what religion does is it gives us this sense that, okay, I'm good, you're evil, therefore I'm, I'm better than you. If I eat a particular thing, if I do a particular thing, that I'm going to be elevated above you. I'm going to feel good about myself. I'm going to approach God. Uh, God what God said wasn't good enough. I have to do something else. They ate fruit from that tree. We've been eating fruit from that tree from then on. So Jesus notices a fig tree in full leaf. It looks good. That's what Eve said about the tree. Religion really looks good. She said that tree looks like it's good for food. It's fruit is desired. I think it will make me wise. People look toward religion and says, I think it would be good if I do that. I'll feel good about myself. I'll be a better person. We'll have a better community. I'll be a better family person if I do certain things. So he went over to see it if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. It's what religion is. It's a form. It's a ritual. It's, it's things that you have to do over and over and over again. It's a codependent system. I have to depend on a guy and a place and doing things over and over again in order to be accepted and loved by God. So the next verse, Jesus says something interesting. Remember, we started with two trees. Then Jesus said to the tree. Jesus has lost his mind, apparently, because he suddenly he's talking to trees. But there's a reason he's speaking to this tree that doesn't have fruit, but looks like it does. This is a metaphor, if you will. This is an example where he's figuratively. I didn't think of that till just now. Come on, that's pretty good. That was on the spot. I'm working hard up here for you people. Okay, figuratively, he's saying this tree represents the religion of Israel. This represents all these sacrifices in this temple system. And he says, may no one eat your fruit ever again. I don't want anybody to be involved with this temple system of worship ever again. And the disciples heard him say it. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus is about to throw a complete temple tantrum, by the way. I had thought of that before, so I don't want you to think too. It didn't just come up with that. So. Okay, when they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people that were buying and selling animals for sacrifices. The book of John says he made a cord 
out of ropes. He made a whip out of these cords. And he is, all of a sudden, I mean, this is a quiet place where people are trying to worship. All of a sudden, Jesus is going like old John Wayne on people. You guys don't even know who John Wayne is, some of you younger people. They're buying and selling animals for the sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. This is one of those instances, if someone had stopped you on the street and said, was Jesus ever mad? Did Jesus ever get mad? Almost everybody says, oh yeah, he flipped tables in the temple that one time. Nobody knows why, but they all say, yeah, this is when Jesus was mad. And I want you to keep that in mind, that this is like the, um, what's, it's not, the word isn't stereotypical, what is the word I'm looking for? Huh? No, uh, epitome, yeah, is a good word. What is the word? Quintessential. Woo! That's a good word. Eric. Okay, this is the quintessential. Epitome is a good word too, though. Um, this is the quintessential example of God being ticked off. And if we can figure out what that is, I think it will help us a lot in our relationship with him. What is Jesus' problem here? Has he just been under a lot of stress? What's the deal? Now, a lot of people would say, well, it's because they were selling stuff in the temple. But actually, them selling the, the lambs and the turtle doves and everything for the sacrifices is providing a service because these Jewish people are coming from a long distance, even within, with northern Israel itself, but all the Jews that are from the diaspora where they were scattered um, 8th century B.C. and then again in 6th century B.C., the two armies from the north, Assyria and then Babylon, came and took the Jewish people away from their homeland, and they have settled in all these nations surrounding, and they come back for this huge, huge festival at Passover. They can't take a lamb with them that entire distance. The lamb would be, could be injured, then it couldn't be uh, used for a sacrifice. So these people are providing a service for these pilgrims, for these travelers that are coming back. They travel to Jerusalem, then they buy the lamb and their sacrifice, then they can make the sacrifice there. Plus, they have to exchange their money because their money is from all kinds of other countries that have an a, uh, image of the leader of that country, and the Jewish people believed that that was um, a pagan thing. They believed that would be an offense to God because they weren't supposed to make any graven image. So they had to change the Roman denarius to a Jewish uh, shekel, half shekel actually, to pay the temple tax. So they're doing all these things. This is actually a service. Is Jesus mad because this is happening? No. Let me give you three words to tell you why Jesus was upset about this. Location, location, location. They have used that court of the Gentiles, and history tells us that up till this point, we don't know exactly the year, but it could have happened just between the time Jesus was last at the temple and when he arrives in Jerusalem. Up till this point, this entire marketplace was on the Mount of Olives that we showed you before. The Jewish people would have to come. They come to Jerusalem. They go across the valley up to the Mount of Olives. They make their purchase of their sacrifice. They exchange their money back through. Is this a good? Am I doing good with this? Back through the Kidron Valley over to the temple and, and do, what do their worship there. So the Sadducees who were in charge of the temple worship system had recently moved that marketplace from the Mount of Olives into the court of the Gentiles. Because the court of the Gentiles didn't matter to them. They weren't Gentiles. They were insiders. 
And so they've taken up the only place that is available for people who are non-Jewish people to worship. And they've used it as a convenience for themselves. This is going to be easier on us. You outsiders, we don't really care about you at all. In fact, to sort of drive this home a little bit, that inner box that I showed you earlier where you'd walk up the steps and go through the doors, that's where the Israelis people would go. Historians had said this for years, that there were stones that were embedded in the wall that had a warning to anybody that wanted to go inside there. In the 1800s, they actually found these stones. And these are two of them, actual pictures of the actual stones that were embedded in the walls. And they had a message to all non-Jewish people. And this is the translation. Have to clear that off. There you go. Sorry, I didn't do that when I did. No foreigner may enter within the barrier around the sanctuary and the enclosure. Whoever is caught on himself shall he put blame for the death which will ensue. Welcome to church. (laughs) That's basically what is happening here, is the Jewish people have taken something that God intended to be a light and an access point for everyone in the entire world, and they've built a box around it. They've built a fence around it. They've put up gates. They've put up signs that says, do not come in here. Twice in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah reminds the people of Israel that the reason you are God's people, they begin to think that they were really special, that they had really done something to to deserve or earn God's favor. But God always looks to partner, and he, he partnered with one guy, Abraham, to try to get his message of love and acceptance of, I want to have a relationship with you, not make sacrifices back into the earth. And Abraham had kids, and their kids had kids, and their kids had kids, and it became the nation of Israel. And God's purpose, twice in Isaiah, he reminds Israel, you are the light of the world. That's something we ascribe to Jesus, but it was something that God actually said to Israel hundreds of years before. The reason I got you guys together as a people is so you could demonstrate to the entire world my nature. Instead, they uh, made it a religion. They institutionalized it, made it into sacrifices and a place to go, and it was never God's idea or God's intention. And here they've taken this place that the only place that people can come to worship God that are non-Jewish, and they've filled it up with an obstacle to worshiping God. Jesus goes on and he says this. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer. Now, what is prayer? People still have a religious idea about prayer. What does Jesus mean? My my temple is supposed to be a house of prayer. Prayer, what what are you looking for when you pray? When you pray, what's the deal? Anybody here ever pray about anything? What's your problem when you're praying? You need something? Or? Huh? You're thankful. What? You want answers. There's something you don't know. You have questions. You're seeking something. Jesus is saying, my temple is supposed to be a place you can come and get your questions answered. People that are seeking to know me. People that need something. It's not a place where insiders come and rejoice in the fact that we are God's people and they're not. For all nations. This was revolutionary. Jesus is reminding them, hey, this isn't an Israel thing. This is an everyone thing. This has implications for how we do church. It's not for us. It's for everyone. But you've turned it into a den of thieves. And people have have said, well, see, it's a den of thieves. These people were robbing, so that's why Jesus was upset. But no, 
The den of thieves isn't where you do the robbing. The den of thieves is where you go after you've done the robbing. It's where you go and you count the loot. It's the gangster's lair. It's where we go and we say, hey, we got away with it. Let's count this money. Is everybody back? Well, we lost Bill. Well, Bill was sort of slow anyway. So, you know, they're, they're counting their stuff. It's where you go and you rejoice that you didn't get caught. He said, that's what you've turned. You go out in the world every day and you don't care about anybody but yourself. You're living selfishly. You don't care about the poor and the outcast. And you come here to hide. That's what religion is good for. You get dressed up and look good on Sunday morning. And you act different. And you put on your mask. And you come and you raise your hands. Or you give your money. Or you do whatever. And you say, oh, bless you. Bless you, sister. Bless you, brother. And then you go out and do whatever you want to. Jesus said, no. It's a den of thieves. There's so much else that I wanted to talk about. But my time's... Time's getting away. Let's go and talk about the final event that this led up to because there's so many things. There's, there's where G Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple. Jesus said this, his disciples said, you know, this temple is amazing. And Jesus actually said, well, it's going to be destroyed. It's one of the biggest, biggest um, what is, I'm losing words, huh? Consequences. No, I want to, it's consequence. No, it's, no, coincidence is the word I'm looking for. Could you guys help me just say coincidence? coincidence? One of the biggest coincidences in the history of history is this religion that has lasted for thousands of years. Jesus arrives on the scene and says, this is over. We're not doing this anymore. He renounces the temple. He actually, he actually raises the temple and says, I'm the temple now. This is me. We don't need this structure anymore. His disciples asked him about it. and He said, actually, this whole temple is going to be completely destroyed. Forty years later, it was completely destroyed. The religion he was renouncing can no longer be practiced for the last 2,000 years after Jesus says, we're done with this religion thing. Forty years later, the temple is destroyed. When he said that was going to happen, that's quite a big coincidence. But this all leads up to a point where Jesus is going to be executed. And let's go to that slide. It says that the bridge, the, the people had built with religion, they were attempting to build a bridge to get to God. And the reason that Jesus is eventually executed is the system, the very system designed to bridge the gap between God and man, executed God for destroying their bridge. It's the reason he was executed. He comes in and and denounces the temple system and just wreaks havoc, throws the monkey wrench in the whole thing, and they said, we can't, we can't do this anymore. We don't care if you're God or not. We have our system. And we have this symbol of, of Jesus on this cross. It's actually an execution. A lot of times, you know, we'll put it on a wall or we'll hang it around our neck, but it's actually a gruesome, horrific event where Jesus is on this cross. Why was he on that cross? Because religion... The political system and religion got together. The religious leaders decided he can't live. The very system that was designed to access God when God showed up and said, we don't need the system, the system executed him. And in fact, Paul said it this way, that not only, because we always think about just our sins were nailed to that tree. The apostle Paul said that religion itself, it says, while you were spiritually dead because of your sins, and because you were not free from the power of your sinful self, God made you alive with Christ and he forgave all our sins. He canceled the debt, which listed all the rules we failed to follow. 
He took away that record with its rules and nailed it to the cross. The entire system of rules and regulations was executed with Jesus. That's what he's doing. He's absorbing the uh, brutality. He's absorbing the absurdity of religion. When he's on the cross and he's saying, I am absorbing this into myself. This is your sins that is crucifying me. I'm accepting it as my own. But at the same time, while your sins are being forgiven, religion itself is being nailed to this cross. And this is the end. And just for God to put sort of an exclamation point on that, something amazing happened right at the end when Jesus is being executed. He's about to die. This thing happens at the end. He's been through all this torture and all this pain. It says Jesus shouted out again. He's on the cross, and he just shouts out, and he released his spirit, and Jesus is dead. It's over. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple, you remember that tall structure where I said there's a 60-foot curtain, 30-foot wide, 4 inches thick? At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple where they said God lived was torn in two from top to bottom. Here's sort of an artist's conception of it. You have this huge curtain there in the temple, right in the Holy of Holies, not from the bottom to the top. At the very moment that Jesus yells and he's dead, God is making an exclamation from the top to the bottom, this place where you said that I live is done. He rips the, the, the partition, the obstacle, the barrier between God and man, the thing where religion had said, really, you have to be a special holy guy with a special holy sacrifice to come to the special holy place where God is. Right at the crucifixion of Jesus, God says, this is done. This is over. I'm out of here. Some of you older may understand this expression. Elvis has left the building. <laughs> and that's what God is saying. I am not a God who lives in temples made by hand. I'm not a God that lives within a system of you trying to get to me. I came to you. You wouldn't accept it. You've executed me. You've killed me. But then he comes back to life just to say, you know, I forgive you. I'm still loving you. I'm still showing you that I'm after you, that I'm for you, that I'm pursuing you. There's nothing you need to do to get to me. And that's something that we want, we want everybody here to understand. Because I know that there are some of you that may have been in church for a long time, some of you that are just coming for the very first time. And there's something inside of you, we said this from the beginning, that there's this search that's inside of every single person that's looking to know, how do I get to God? How do I access Him? What do I have to do? Well, Jesus is saying with this entire episode, and especially Jesus' love is most perfectly demonstrated when he gets on that tree and instead of killing his enemies, he would rather die than pay people back for what they've done wrong. He would rather accept their wrong as himself than to inflict any injury on the people that he loves so much. This lion that the people thought were, was going to come in actually became a lamb and said, no, I'm just, I'm just here for you. And if you've been searching for God, if you've been looking for him, there's three things I do want you to know today as we wrap this up. 
Number one, your search for God is over. You found him. He came to you. There's nothing you have to do. You're accepted. You're forgiven. The Apostle Paul tells us to tell the message that God's not holding things against you. Just say, okay, I trust what you've done. Your search for God is over. Number two, your sin is over. It's no longer a barrier between you and God. And finally, Jesus made his final stamp, put the final nail in the coffin. Religion is over. 